Our scripture reading this morning comes from two places. <clears throat> Again, in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 13. <clears throat> and then Ezekiel chapter 37. 2 Kings chapter 13. And then the rarely heard from, but for the second time today, book of Ezekiel. If you're visiting with us today, welcome. We're working our way through 2 Kings, and we have especially been giving uh, focus or attention to the lives of Elijah, the prophet, and Elisha. Today, we get to the end of the life of Elisha, and just a little bit beyond. Listen, this is God's Word, 2 Kings chapter 13. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of Yahweh, and Yahweh listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore, Yahweh gave Israel a savior so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians. And the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which made, he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria and Joash, his son, reigned in his place. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel in Samaria and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows, and they said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha, Elisha said, Shoot, and he shot. 
And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now, bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet." Now Hosea, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But Yahweh was gracious to them, and he had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Hosea, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then, jo- then Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. And now Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1 through verse 14 The hand of Yahweh was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of Yahweh and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Yahweh God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. 
and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares Yahweh. Fifty days after he rose from the dead, and ten days after he ascended into heaven, Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit onto the church, the Spirit he had received from his Father as his gift and reward. Or in the words of Peter, Acts 2, 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Well, that makes today, if you're counting, Pentecost Sunday, the day the church celebrates that event when Jews from all over the world were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the wheat harvest, an ingathering harvest. And when we now celebrate the gospel harvest that accompanied the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, which is just another name for what became of the northern tribes of Israel and to the ends of the earth. According to ancient Jewish tradition, the day of Pentecost also coincided with the anniversary of the giving of the law of God to Moses on Mount Sinai 50 days after their exodus from Egypt. And if this is the case, we'd have on Sinai the law of God written by the finger of God on stone tablets to be given to Moses to be given to the people. Whereas we now have because of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the law of God written on our hearts. And just how strong that historical connection might be with the giving of the law and Pentecost Sunday, we would easily, readily admit the Old Testament stories we have been following in 2 Kings remind us of the powerlessness of the law written on stone tablets to change human behavior. Second Kings is reminding us of the role of the prophets, especially Elijah and now Elisha, who spoke the word of God to the people of God, who especially addressed the kings, but also all the people, reminding them of their obligations to fulfill their side of that covenant relationship God had established with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the story reminds us regularly of the failures of those kings and of the nation faithfully to listen to that word and to follow the law of God. And so we hear the repeated evaluation or that refrain in the book of Kings, mostly, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Or, if they did what was right in the sight of the Lord, they still did not go all the way or ever reach the high water mark established by King David in his obedience and in his righteousness. So we're left longing again and again through 2 Kings, longing for a law-keeping king, one who will lead the people in righteousness and holiness. 
but who will not only lead them, but by the Lord's blessing for that restored relationship would lead them into paths of peace and abundance. Which is why we rejoice at the coming of Jesus, who is not only a king in the line of David, but who perfectly keeps God's law. And then who offers himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people, and who defeats his enemies and ours, and who then pours out his Holy Spirit on us, both to make us alive, to hear and embrace the Word of God, to make us alive in Christ, to be able to live for Christ. And so the Holy Spirit, whose outpouring we celebrate today, is the life-giving Spirit of Christ who reveals Jesus, the Word of God, to us, and who enables us to believe in Him and to entrust Him, even as He internalizes, the Spirit internalizes the Word of God to us and for us and in us. And that's the good news for us today as we celebrate Pentecost. And the real question is, can we get there from 2 Kings chapter 13? And I think we can. Because the message is in 2 Kings and in chapter 13 in particular is the Spirit who makes the Word alive. And who takes the living and active Word of God, makes us able to hear it and to receive it and to embrace it. And I want you to see in this chapter at least four places where the Word of God comes true. First, it's in the opening 13 verses. We see God's Word and God's promises up in the north. Specifically, and we might have forgotten this, but we see Jehu's son and then his grandson on the throne. Jehu's son, Jehoahaz, reigns. And then when Jehoahaz dies, his son, Joash, reigns. So now we have a Joash in the north and a Joash in the south, and sometimes one or the other or both at the same time are also called Jehoash. Confusing, I know, and just remember, I passed my English Bible exam without knowing all this. But here's the point, at least this part of it, that is the line of Jehu is reigning on the throne. And that line will go on through four generations. And this is the Lord honoring His word to Jehu through Elisha, which is that Jehu would receive this as his reward for destroying the house of Ahab. So just having a son and a grandson of Jehu on the throne is, a, is evidence of God keeping His promises. And this we'll see uh, later when that line runs out. Well, the second fulfillment of the word of the Lord is His expression of both judgment and mercy marked in the career of Hazael and then his son Ben-Hadad, kings of Syria. Hazael's career, you'll remember, is uh, brought about because of, again, the work of the Lord through Elisha. And Hazael, king of Syria, enjoys successes in battle against Israel. This is a remarkable moment, really, or series of events. And it happens to the point where Jehoahaz, Jehu's son, is left with a shell of a military. He could not even barely have a parade. 
Notice in verse 7, the mighty armies of Israel have been so depleted, uh, we'd have to go back to remember King Solomon was noted as having 1,400 chariots, 1,400 chariots. Jehoahaz is down to 10. Solomon had 12,000 horsemen, just the people who could drive the chariots or be in those chariots. Jehoahaz has, Jehoahaz has about 50. 10 chariots, 50 horsemen. How the mighty have fallen. And when we recall 2 Kings chapter 8, we remember that Hazael is put in power and granted the power and ability by God, having been anointed and appointed by Elisha, to execute God's judgment and justice on his own people. God has, through his prophet, anointed a foreign power, a king of a foreign power, to come and to work God's judgment on his people. And he promises him success. But here we discover now there are also limits to that. This is, again, God's grace and his mercy. God had been angry with his people. And then Jehoahaz, for some reason, calls out to God. And God brings or reels Hazael back in. There were limits. And so we see the third way God's word comes true in both verses 4 and 5. And again in verse 23, the Lord, Yahweh, remembered his covenant promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Underneath all of the wheeling and dealing of kings coming and going and time marching on through the lands of Israel and Judah, this remains true. God had made promises to them because God had made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so the Lord relents of his judgment in response to Jehoahaz's prayer and his gracious and compassion demonstrates his grace and compassion just as he had promised. And he gives relief, gives relief from judgment, or at least he delays the judgment. And the judgment is coming a judgment of destruction and dispersion of the northern tribes, but it's not going to happen just yet. Hazael is restrained in what God permits him to do. And this gets expressed in, and confirmed in that odd scene with the arrows shooting out a window and, and, and striking against the ground, where the king of Joash of Israel now visits Elisha on his deathbed. And Elisha promises him through that little display a measure of success against the kings of Syria. And he will receive these victories over Hazael's son, Ben-Hadad. Three victories where he reclaims some of the land uh, that Hazael had taken from his father. And the chapter then ends with that just a little sign of hope in what are otherwise very dark days. But the fourth and the greatest and the longest lasting expression of God's word coming true has to be in one of the strangest stories in the Old Testament, at least in 2 Kings. The resurrection of a man who fell onto the bones of Elisha. This is the last act of Elisha whose career we have been following 
since the Lord gave the command to Elijah way back in 2 Kings 19. Just after, you remember, Elijah's spectacular victory, the Lord's spectacular victory through Elijah over Baal and over Ahab on Mount Carmel. Elijah, despairing of his life, has the Lord visit him and say, he was to anoint Jehu, king of Israel, he was to anoint Hazael, king of Syria, and he was to anoint Elisha as his successor. And just to remind us of a few of the other connections and the significance that helps us understand this strange story here, last week we celebrated the ascension of our Lord Jesus into heaven. And Elisha was present for the ascension of Elijah into heaven. And just prior to that event, he asked his master for a double portion of his spirit, which he was granted. And when Elijah disappeared, Elisha cried out, what? Do you remember? My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. The exact words Joash, king of Israel, says to Elisha as Elisha is on his deathbed. But before we get there, we remember some of the other great events in Elisha's life. Our children will remember he called out two bears who mauled 42 boys because they disrespected the prophet of the Lord. Or we remember the miraculous supply of oil for a desperate widow. Or his interactions with the Shunammite woman and how he granted a son to this childless couple who had shown him hospitality. And then later raised that son from the dead. We remember he made water drinkable and stew edible. How he cleansed Naaman the leper and had that leprosy transferred to Gehazi, his servant. And, of course, how he made an axe head float for a poor seminary student. But this here in verses 20 and 21 most likely wins the prize for the story about Elisha we have not heard. Or it might win the prize for being one of the oddest miracle stories in the Bible. Some argue that this story is rarely told in Protestantism and often buried because of the way it has been used in the history of the church to justify the veneration of relics. The notion there is divine power in the shards of bone or in the pickled body parts of saints who've gone before. But notice this story is remarkable because it is a flashback. It is told of the evil king Joash of Israel who came to visit Elisha on his deathbed. And upon seeing Elisha near the end of his life, the king exclaims again, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Exactly the phrase Elisha had used as Elijah was ascending. But both at Elisha using it and now Joash using it, making the point that the prophets of Yahweh, as they brought the word of the Lord to the people of the Lord, were of more value to the well-being and to the defense of God's people than a strong, well-equipped army, which we just happen to have been told Israel no longer has. 
down to just a handful of chariots, just a handful of horsemen. And now Elisha is about to die. These are dark days in the history of Israel. And this makes Elisha's promise of three victories over Syria all the more unlikely. And then Elisha dies and is buried, and years later, it seems, there's a funeral procession for an unknown and unnamed man making its way to the cemetery. And just to be reminded again that Israel does not enjoy peace and rest from enemies, we're told the Moabites were doing their normal thing every spring, coming along to make these little raids. And the procession, this funeral procession, turns a corner and catches sight of one of these bands of Moabites. And the mourners, in their haste, in their desire to, be, uh, to escape this band, toss the body into the nearest hole, which just happens to be the grave of Elisha. And when the corpse hits the bottom, it lands on the bones of Elisha, and the man immediately springs back to life and stands on his feet. I don't know about you, but I sure wonder what was running through that man's mind in that moment. Where am I? How did I get here? Why am I standing in the middle of a pile of human bones? And where are my friends? And why did they literally ditch me? Elisha, remember, had asked for a double measure of Elijah's spirit. Elijah had raised the son of the widow of Zarephath. And Elisha had matched that by raising the son of the Shunammite woman. Which makes this story the second resurrection for Elisha, or double that of Elijah. And it might interest you to know that while he was on earth, our Savior raised three people from the dead. He does one better. He raises the son of the widow of Nahan, the daughter of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, and of course, Lazarus, his dear friend. But back to Elisha for a moment. We should ask ourselves, why does God have this strange event not only happen, but then be recorded in Scripture for us for subsequent generations? And isn't it a simple, if odd story of the enduring and life-giving power of the Word of God who promises and accomplishes victory over His enemies and ours. The Lord through Elisha on His deathbed promises victory over the Syrians. And that word comes true. And the Lord through Elisha reminds us His word never dies. And that through his greater word and by the power of his Holy Spirit, he will accomplish more and lasting victories over death itself. We shouldn't simply skip over the real blessing it must have been to the man who is surprised to come back to life as he's standing in a pile of bones. 
Never mind the joy it must have been to his family and friends to have him restored to them. But the real message of this event extends to the people of God in exile, the people who would receive the book of Kings first, who would have been told these great stories of the succession of kings and helping them to understand why, they're being, why they are in exile anyway. And to give them this sense of hope that not one of God's words falls to the ground without coming true. A later generation in exile would be told this story and would be forced to conclude Elisha's death does not mean that God's promises or God's power to keep his promises perish with him. Even in Elisha's death, the word and the power of God remain true. He will defeat his enemies and theirs, the Syrians, but he will defeat their enemy and his death itself. And then this is the same message we get in the prophecies of Ezekiel. The prophet of the Lord who comes to later generations and to Judah in the south. During their time of captivity. And Ezekiel is given an impossible task, but it's one with results that give hope to every preacher of the gospel. By God's power, His Word, applied by, with His Spirit, can actually make dead bones alive. Ezekiel sent by God to preach to this valley filled with dead, very dry bones. And it's an odd but certainly more famous story than that of Elisha. But in this context, Ezekiel is prophesying future victory, future restoration to God's people. In other words, as they're in captivity, the coming destruction of their enemies, the restoration they will enjoy, being restored to their land, rebuilding their cities and their homes, enjoying the benefits of abundant crops, life in the land. And when Ezekiel preaches to those bones, they come to life because the word of God through the mouth of Ezekiel is accompanied by the spirit and the breath of God who reanimates those skeletal remains. Just as God breathed life into that clump of dirt in the garden and made him Adam. And just as the Spirit of God breathes life into Jesus in the tomb, and the same Spirit of God breathes inward, renewed life into you. This Pentecost Sunday, we celebrate the life-giving Spirit of Christ who was sent by the resurrected and ascended Son of God, having been received by Him from His Father as His gift and reward and a spirit who accompanies the living Word of God, both as it is proclaimed and as it is centered in Jesus the Word Himself. And this spirit reanimates you, makes you to see and to hear and to embrace Jesus, in whom is the very life of God. Jesus, who is the living proof of God's compassion and mercy, the one who bore the judgment and the wrath for sin, and who's the ultimate expression, the ultimate expression 
of God's commitment to his promises and his demonstrated ability to keep them for you and for your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for this strange, odd story in the life and in the death of Elisha. Thank you for your reanimating spirit, the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Thank you that you give us life in Christ, that same spirit living in us, rewriting the very laws onto our hearts, enabling and empowering us to walk in new obedience. Thank you for our union with Christ, worked by your spirit, who's given us eyes to see him, ears to hear him, and hearts drawn to him to be filled by him. Lord, we thank you and we give you thanks this day in the name of Jesus, our resurrected, ascended, spirit-giving Savior. And all God's people say together, amen.